The gospel is the forgiveness of sins and the imparting of righteousness. The forgiveness of sins and the giving of righteousness. Our sin is our debt. Our sin is our crime. Worthy of the death penalty. All sin ultimately leads to death. And the world is so sinful, it justifies killing and all kinds of other things that goes on. The court system operates to try to sort all that out. And we live in a corrupt, fallen world. The sin leads to death. Thank God, through Jesus, our sins are forgiven. But He didn't just stop there. You know, now, now our books that were in the red, spiritually, are paid in full. Hallelujah. Great to have a zero balance when you've owed millions. But He didn't stop there. He imparted to us His priceless, matchless, unsearchable riches of His righteousness to our account. We've been made, He became sin for us, that we may be made the righteousness of God in Him. So He's taken our sins away, you give and take away, and He's given His righteousness. Thank you, Lord. And yet, we are prone to wander. The old nature, the old programming, the old habits, the old addictions want to come back and cause us to feed on things that, that's contrary to the new nature that God has given us. So it's important to, to daily give Him our hearts. Say, Lord, I want to walk in the righteousness. I want my life to express the righteousness that You've given me. It's not in an effort to earn the righteousness. It's, it's all out of thanksgiving. A thankful heart. We don't want to live a life full of guilt and shame. We want to live a life of victory in Him. And through His grace, He enables us to do that. The Christian life is one that's empowered by inspiration and appreciation, not condemnation and desperation. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Generations Church, here are just a couple of the many great things happening. Don't forget that starting Sunday, September 8th, we're going to two services. It's time for us to make this change in pursuit of our congregation's full potential. We want to provide two Lord's Day opportunities for our Worship in the Word services, resulting in more room for ministry, fellowship, and new friendships. So whether you join us at 9 a.m. or 10.30 a.m., you're going to have a wonderful time. Please note that children's ministry will be available in the 10.30 a.m. service only. Get ready for the new service times because the two-service schedule will be here before you know it. In our effort to keep you connected to Generations Church 24 hours a day, we now have two websites. You know about our first one, generationspeople.org, for desktop users. Well, today we're adding our second website, generationspeople.mobi, for our mobile users. Now, no matter where you are in the world, you're just a click away from all the great things happening at the church. On our mobile site, you'll find a lot of ministry information, including links to our iPhone and Android apps and our iTunes podcasts. 
And remember, if you forget this exact address, simply search for Generations Church of Granbury and you'll find us. So remember, to get more information about everything going on, check out our weekly Lord's Day Bulletin. Visit generationspeople.org and generationspeople.mobi and by liking our Facebook page. We'll see you next time. Let's go to John chapter 6, verse 59. The context of our teaching from the Gospel of John is he, in chapter 5, fed 5,000 men plus women and children after a long day of ministry, teaching, and healing, and performing miracles. And he fed them miraculously. The next morning, they wake up. I guess they were camping. They went looking for Jesus and found him on the other side of the lake. He had taken a walk in the middle of the night and joined his disciples in a boat in the middle of the sea. When the winds were high, it must have been fun to do that. It was a sign of who he was. When they saw him, they were afraid. He said, I am. Do not be afraid. He declared himself, I believe, to be the great I am. And of course, there's a couple prophecies in the Old Testament about God walking on the waves of the sea. And so, another demonstration of who he was. So the next morning, they wake up, find him gone. So they catch boats and find where he is. And they're obviously hungry again. He begins to declare to them the truth about feeding their spiritual hunger that they need to receive eternal life. Did you know everybody's hungry for eternal life? Proof of it is nobody wants to die. Right? We want to live. We want to live, right? We want to live. We'll spend millions. Our nation could go into bankruptcy out of the desire for eternal life. We want to live forever, and yet death is a sure thing. Taxes are too. And so, he came and brought eternal life. They wanted more bread that would feed them temporarily. They'd received miraculous bread the day before, and here the day after, they're hungry again. Because it doesn't last. That's natural bread. And so we break into his discourse here in talking to them, which happens to be in a synagogue in Capernaum. So his discussion with thousands of people listening involves people that weren't even there as well. It's an amazing discourse. All right, verse 59 of John 6 says, These things he said in the synagogue as he taught them in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Now, he got really graphic in his description of their need to receive the eternal life that he gives. Listen to what he said a few verses earlier in verse 47. He said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. Now, a few verses earlier, he was talking to them about the importance of believing in him. And they said, show us a sign. They had already seen many signs the day before. And then they suggested a sign. You know, Moses gave manna in the wilderness. They were hinting at, you know, some more bread multiplication. So he just segues into what they're talking about and says, hey, the people that ate that miraculous bread are dead. But the bread I give brings eternal life. Next verse. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. 
If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. He's going to die on the cross so that the death sentence that is upon the human race pronounced by the law, according to the law, we're all worthy of death, can be paid for. So now we're no longer worthy of death, and now He gives us eternal life by believing in Him. The Jews, therefore, verse 52, quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us flesh to eat? In italics, you see the pronoun his. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? This is kind of a weird doctrine. So Jesus doesn't soft-soap anything. He's not like a modern-day salesman that kind of helps you to embrace what he's saying. He just hits them with the truth. He said to them, verse 53, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. My flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Now he throws him a curve. He's talking about believing in him wholeheartedly. You ever been really hungry? How do you eat? Wholeheartedly. I've had allergies in the past. The doctor prescribed steroids. Man, talk about hunger. On steroids, you eat wholeheartedly. I've heard about the munchies. I think that's wholehearted eating. (laughs) Have you ever come home and your wife's prepared a delicious meal and you didn't know she was going to do it and you already ate? That's not wholehearted eating. The parallel between believing and eating is really easy to see. My son ate at a fast food restaurant here in Granbury, a particular franchise. I will not say the name of it because I still like that franchise. But as a result of his horrible experience of food poisoning, he won't eat at that restaurant ever again for the rest of his life, no matter where he is, because he does not believe that it's safe for him to eat. You won't eat wholeheartedly if you don't believe. Right? Maybe you're on a mission trip and they're serving fried spiders. And the Bible says whatever's before you eat it, you know. It's hard to do it wholeheartedly. Just kind of snack around. Lord, I'm trusting you. If you drink any deadly thing, it will not harm you, you know. When it comes to being a believer, there's no half-believing in this thing. It's wholehearted. His flesh and His blood. We celebrate communion with little cups and little pieces of bread for the sake of convenience to get the point across. The original Lord's Supper was a full meal. And He served it and said, This is my body which is broken for you. 
This is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for you. So we celebrate what He did with His body for us when we partake of communion. And when we don't, we wholeheartedly believe that what He did was for us. All right, back to the sermon. Verse 59 again. These things He said in the synagogue as He taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of His disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? So the last few minutes we've talked about the context of what this hard saying was. Verse 61. When Jesus knew in Himself that His disciples complained about this, He said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. So He had with Him the twelve disciples that He called to be apostles, but also possibly hundreds of disciples that said that they were believers in Him. But we're about to discover the majority of them were not wholehearted believers. He's telling them that what I'm saying must be discerned spiritually. I'm talking about something spiritual. Next verse. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray Him. And He said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to Me unless it has been granted to Him by My Father. No one can come to Me unless it has been granted to Him by My Father. Another offensive statement. Verse 66, From that time many of His disciples went back and walked with Him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, His closest followers, Do you also want to go away? Verse 68, But Simon Peter answered Him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words. He may not have understood everything Jesus said. He may not yet be a wholehearted follower. He too turned away later on under pressure. But he had a glimpse that something significant was connected between Jesus and eternal life and His words. And we have come to believe and know that You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah. You're the one that's been anointed to fulfill the promises of a King that was promised to us that would come to redeem us. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? Now put yourself in the shoes of the twelve. Jesus isn't tickling their ears. He's not being really sensitive to their feelings. Peter just made a great proclamation and there's no, hey, that, that a boy the church has built on this rock. He did that earlier in Matthew 16. Here he said, I chose all twelve of you and one of you guys is a devil. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Jesus never tried to hide contradictory facts. Openly he proclaimed the truth concerning himself and his kingdom, as well as our need for God's help in receiving his redemption from our sins. That can only come through faith in him, which in itself is a gift from God. Offensive to our self-preserving ways, Jesus tells us the truth in him. 
want to speak to you today on the subject, Jesus is paradoxical. Yes, that is a word. Can you say paradoxical? Paradox is not a couple people in the medical profession. A paradox, a good paradox, a good paradox, there's evil paradoxes, but a good paradox is something that on the surface appears to be contradictory, but yet both are true. An example is electricity. In your car is a battery that, if it's any good, has a north pole and a south pole. Polar opposites, and yet working together gives power. Life comes from opposites coming together and generating life. I don't know about you, but I married my opposite. Sameness breeds lameness. Adam and Steve can't conceive. Christ is paradoxical. He's a walking contradiction, but He's not a contradiction. It just appears to be so. Watch this. There appears to be a contradiction in the Bible. This contradiction confronted religious leaders but accepted sinners. This contradiction taught with authority but he never went to seminary. He blessed children but frightened Pharisees. He wasn't rich but he was able to feed everyone who came here. He had a royal lineage, but he washed his followers' feet. He worked many miracles, but he never asked for a donation. He knew his purpose, but he prayed for guidance daily. He lived for God, but he died for you. Jesus the living contradiction or paradox. Let's just look at a few of the paradoxes before we actually get to my three main points. Jesus is God and man. It's not possible. They wanted to crucify Him because He was a man saying He was God. And yet, He is. He was all about the law. He didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill the law. And bringing grace. The law says you must die. The grace says you get to live. Without the law, you don't appreciate grace. The law came through Moses. But truth and mercy came through Jesus. Thank God for both. Without mercy, truth is deadly. But without truth, mercy will kill you. Oh, honey, it's okay. Play out in the street if you want to. Whatever you want to do. I want you to love me. I want to be your best friend. The child gets killed. Mercy, too much mercy will kill you. But truth and mercy are perfectly balanced in him. Losing and gaining. You want to gain? Learn how to lose. You want to win? Learn how to surrender. Part of his teaching. Serving and reigning. You want to reign? Learn how to serve. Trouble and cheerfulness. In the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. What in the world? What a contradiction. Maturity and childlikeness. We're called to be mature, right? 
yet we're called to be childlike. Tilt. How's this work? Abundant life. I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. But yet, we're called to die to self. There are ministries that exist, I think, to serve the purposes of God to emphasize one of these things. But if you want the whole counsel of God, you've got to embrace the whole package. Some will overemphasize God's sovereignty and minimize our responsibility. And others will overemphasize our responsibility and minimize God's sovereignty. I embrace them both. Do I understand how everything works? No. But I think one helps you appreciate the other. Without the law, grace is not appreciated. It just becomes grease. You've heard of greasy grace? Paul said, shall we sin so that grace may abound? Grace is so good, it would appear that that's true. When we should die, He gives us life out of His grace. So it's not a license to sin. It's freedom from sin. And by His grace, when we mess up, He helps us get back up and go on and continue to pursue His purposes. Now, if you look behind you, victory is happening. We're winning. We're being conformed to His image. I could stay there for a month, but we're going to move on. There's three paradoxes I'm going to look at in John 6. Number one, believing in Jesus is our only guarantee of eternal life. There's no guarantee of eternal life outside of Him. He said, I am the bread of life. Number two, no one can believe in Him without God's help. I love to hear testimonies how God saves people and the resulting fruit afterwards. But if you get to interview the person deeper, what was your life like before? You really get a perspective on the miracle that happened. Because God was orchestrating things to open their eyes. You may think you chose the Lord, but I'm telling you, the Lord was at work helping you see He was the only legitimate choice. Number three, divine interventions are not always fruitful. But here's the paradox. Believing in Jesus is the only guarantee of eternal life. But we can't believe in Him without His help. And yet, some people receive His help, but it doesn't bear fruit. Paradoxes, right? Alright, hopefully you won't leave here confused today. Let's pray. Lord, help. In Jesus' name, Amen. Number one. Believing in Jesus is our only guarantee of eternal life. John 6, 47, Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, He who believes in Me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which came down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. I am your source of eternal life. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Verse 58. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread 
will live forever. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. You could say, God so loved the world that He gave His Son as the bread of life so that whoever believes Him wholeheartedly or eats Him won't have to perish but might have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son or the bread of life into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. It's important to understand this theologically. The law came through Moses to do what? To condemn the world. Sounds cruel. The law says, hey, you want to be saved? You want eternal life? Do all these 600 plus things. Impossible. Jesus came and emphasized the law. Made it all matters of the heart. Don't kill. He said, don't hate. Don't commit adultery. He said, don't lust. He's the bread of life. He fulfilled the law. We're not saved by obeying any laws. We're saved by believing in Him and following Him and following what He said. So, here's the thing. If God is a loving God, this is what modern people will say, if God is a loving God, He'll save everyone and won't send anyone to hell. God is a loving God. And He sent the law through Moses to show us that we need to be saved. God is a loving God. He created us perfect. And in His sovereignty, gave us a measure of sovereignty. And we as a race screwed it up, which separated us from Him and one another. If you don't think there's a sin problem in the world, look at the newspaper. You don't have to go far. Just pick up a copy of the Hood County News and read the front page. We have a sin problem. Oh, it's always just those people until it happens to one of your relatives and suddenly you realize, Houston, we got a problem. We need redemption. So the law exposes it. It shines a light on us. You know, God only gave 600 laws, but the United States has over 100,000 pages of laws. Why? We're sinners. So if there is no work of redemption and we all go to heaven, what will heaven become? Earth too. And then the modern man also wants to have, or the postmodern man also wants to have his cake and eat it by saying if there's a loving God, why does he allow evil in the world? Okay. Why didn't he allow everyone to go to heaven? Why does he allow evil in the world? Because the world's not heaven. If he starts putting a stop to evil, man, we'll all die like flies. So earth is given to man, and God in his sovereignty gave us a measure of sovereignty, gave us the earth, and we gave it over to Satan and self. And so Jesus came to a world that was already condemned, and that condemnation was exposed by the law, and he came and brought life. So if God is a loving God, and he sent his son, why should we be so stupid to reject the life that has been given to us. Well, I never heard about this. Well, you're hearing about it today. That's the good news. That's why you're here. The God who helps us has drawn you to Himself to hear the Gospel. Number two, no one can believe in Him without God's help. Look at what Jesus said, John 6:37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. If you're a believer, the Father gave you to His Son. 
His Son promised to never cast you out. That's assurance. Verse 44, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Me. By His Holy Spirit, the Father is at work in the world, revealing His Son through His body, through the church. That's why missions and outreach is so important. We're here. We're still here. We're not in heaven. We're still here to do what we don't do in heaven. We're here to evangelize or proclaim the good news. You're tired of sin? There's a way out. You need help with your struggles? There's a way out. You're afraid of dying? There's a way to be free from that. And those that listen and learn will get saved. Jesus said it. Verse 65, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to Me. Can we say no one? No one one can come to Me unless it has been granted to Him by My Father. So no one can get saved without God's help. Paul said it like this, By grace are you saved through faith. And that, implying faith, is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. I'm proclaiming the Gospel today, and maybe you've heard it for years about God so loving the world and giving His Son so that whoever would believe that His Son died for their sins could be freed from their sin. And you've not believed it up to this point, but today you find yourself beginning to believe it. It's starting to make sense. What's going on? I believe saving faith is beginning to dawn in your heart. Receive it. Don't reject it. And allow yourself to believe. Oh, what will my friends say? Forget about your friends. They can't give you eternal life. They're going to die. What will my father say? He's going to die. What is God saying to your heart today? That saving faith. God in His mercy has given you the ability to believe something that is impossible to believe. Don't ever get in arguments with an unbeliever about the Gospel. Just proclaim it. Because they can't believe it without God helping them. He helped us. Number three, divine interventions are not always fruitful. A divine intervention can be you sharing your testimony with someone. I mean, you're opening your heart up only to be mocked. Do we give up? No. We keep right on. Serving God's purposes. Because He wants everyone to hear the good news. John 6, the last part of verse 33, Jesus said, The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. So here Jesus is speaking to this crowd words that are spirit and life if they will but believe them. But there are some of you who do not believe. So here's God in the flesh proclaiming truth and they're rejecting it. Talk about divine intervention. Here's God's Son talking to them and they're rejecting it. But Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray Him. And he said, therefore, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. I believe God was helping them and they rejected it. Verse 70, Jesus said, did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He prayed all night long and in the morning, 
he chose 12 of his many disciples. He chose a dozen of, out of his dozens of disciples to be his closest followers, his apostles. And one of them was not going to be fruitful. It is imperative that if God has given you the gift of saving faith, that you wholeheartedly give yourself to the work that is in his heart. Because all of us have the potential of being a Judas. May God enable us to walk in his way. Application. Three little applications. First one, we need to witness to everyone that Jesus is the way to eternal life. Tell them, everybody wants eternal life. No, I don't. Oh, then are you willing to die? I mean, when people lose hope, they just want to end it all. It's because of pain. Not because they don't want to live any longer when they kill themselves. The bottom line isn't they don't want to live any longer. The bottom line is their life is so painful they don't want to live anymore. So it's pain. Remedy the pain, desire to live comes back. Everybody wants eternal life in normal circumstances. Secondly, we need to receive and exercise God's power for being His witnesses. We need His help. The unsaved people need His help to be believers and we need His help as believers to proclaim the gospel, to share our testimony. So the key isn't to go out and start knocking doors this afternoon. The key is to pray, God, empower me to be your witness. Lead me to someone today and then trust Him to do it. And if He leads you to knock doors, go for it. Thirdly, we need to know that everyone may not always become true believers. Oh, well, it doesn't work for me. I'm not an evangelist. No, everybody's not going to become a believer. But God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should be coming to repentance. That's God's will. So we must proclaim the opportunity to everyone we meet. Jesus said in John 4, in Sychar of Samaria, He said, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. He administered to the Samaritan woman. She's going into town to bring people back. They wound up staying there for three days. He's explaining things to His disciples. This is about the harvest. It's about the Father's fields. And they're already white. You don't have to wait for a season. Verse 36, He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. When you witness to someone, you don't see any fruit, it's okay. You're sowing seeds. Or you're watering seeds that have already been sown. The person that gets to count the number, you know, the person that gets the notches on their gun, I've led someone to Christ. Hallelujah. Great. But on Judgment Day, you're going to get a reward too. Verse 37, For in this, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered in to their labors. Why are we going to two services? This is the friendliest church I've ever been a part of. You ever been to a church where they say, turn and greet your neighbor? You ever done that? We can't do that here. Not because we're not friendly, but because it's just like, it turns into five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten minutes. Sometimes people will go out in the hallway and continue the conversation while we're trying to have a service. It's a friendly place. And so we're surrounded by friends. But as a leader, I feel I've not been a good steward of the guests that God is sending us. I can't preach on 
be friendly, be friendly. It's already happening. So I had an epiphany this spring when we had 80 people missing one Sunday. It looked like we'd had a church split. We had about 70 people at a youth conference and their families enjoyed the weekend away without their kids and all that stuff. So it was at least 80 people. So we were a much smaller crowd. And to my amazement, it appeared to be that we were a friendlier crowd because the friendliness was visible. I had people bringing guests up to me to introduce them to me and all that kind of stuff. It's not all about me, but I saw members being able to be friendly. You ever been part of a cell group that got too big? And it was time to do what? Multiply it. That's what we're doing. We're multiplying this big cell by going to two services. It's not that we're running out of room. What's the importance of this? Because evangelism is important. And friendship is where it's at. Billy Graham is credited with leading more people to Christ than anyone in this past century. But what's the percentage of people that go on to become disciples that have responded to his crowd? What is that percentage? It's less than 3%. Because even if people come to Christ, they won't go on to become disciples without friends. And a mass meeting, it's impossible to do that. Feel, please understand, I'm not shoot anything. Billy Graham himself was saved in a small church where he had friends. So we're going to be able to be friends. It's going to be natural. We're not going to struggle. How are we going to divide the church up? To You know, you go to the nine, you go to the ten. I don't know. Uh, I think sometimes our weaknesses are our strengths. We don't have enough children's workers to man both services and we are not going to burn people out, the Lord willing. Praise team will be here for both, but they're here that long anyway. They're here from 8 to 11.45 every Sunday anyway. So, And sometimes the, the music during practice is even better than during the service. So maybe the early service will get to taste some of that awesome music. It's great. It's awesome. Great. So we will not have children's ministry available during the 9 o'clock service, but we will during the 10.30 service. And maybe that in itself will naturally help things work out. So we're taking a risk. I may look like the dumbest pastor in town when this is over, but I don't want to stand before God and say, well, I tried nothing. <laughs> Remember the story of the guy with the talents? I buried it. So let's try it. Let's have an adventure. Let's do something dangerous. You want to be stretched and you want to have fun? Consider a mission trip. John Defoe, he went on a mission trip with some friends to Columbia had the time of his life. When you talk to him about it, he's just on fire. We're going to conclude the service by showing a slideshow from his trip to Columbia. It was all about proclaiming the good news. Amen? They did door-to-door ministry and they did service projects and they had fun. And so every picture you're going to see people smiling.
You have a testimony. The world needs to hear it. Maybe you've been raised in church. You've walked in wisdom. You have no testimonies compared to others. It's not much. You know, I got saved when I was five. Go on a mission trip. You'll get some. Go for it. If your testimony is 30 years old and you don't have anything fresh, do something. Pastor Shaker always says, if you don't start nothing, there won't be nothing. Do something. Do it. Do it. Let's stand. Lord, help us to embrace everything about You. Even those things we don't understand, may we embrace them. Give us that kind of balance where we believe the things You've shown us and we're willing to believe the things that You're going to show us. Jesus' name. The Lord bless you, keep you. The Lord God Almighty Himself cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May He lift up His countenance upon you and give you 